Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health webcast, Permission to Work Safely, Incorporating Lockout into Permit-Controlled Activities, sponsored by MasterLock. My name is Kevin Drewley. I'm an associate editor with Safety and Health magazine, and I will be moderating today's session. Thanks for joining us. In a few minutes, we'll start the presentation, but first I want to go over some preliminary items. The views of today's speakers and organizations are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean the council or magazine endorses those items. At the end of today's webcast, we will conduct a question and answer session. To ask a question, simply type it in the text box in the lower left-hand corner of your screen and click the button for Submit Question. Feel free to ask your question at any time during the presentation. You don't have to wait for the question and answer session to begin. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible, but because of the large number of participants today, we might not get to every question. Any unanswered questions will be forwarded along to today's speakers. On that topic, though, I want to alert you, too, that our speaker is going to be asking early in the presentation a poll question, just wanting to gauge the audience's familiarity with the permit approach to safety that will be discussed today. And overall, any basic troubleshooting uh, information that you might encounter, just click the Help button located on your screen. At the end of the webcast, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey, and I will let you know more about that after the presentation. The webcast today is archived, so you can access it after the live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, go to safetyandhealthmagazine.com slash events. With that, let's go ahead and get started. Our speaker today will be Todd Grover, Global Senior Manager for Master Locks Professional Services Group. Todd brings more than three decades of experience as an EHS manager, consultant, and college educator. He has worked with the OSHA 1910.147 Control of Hazardous Energy Lockout Tagout tag Standard since, it, since its inception. Again, we thank all of you for tuning into this presentation. Todd, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. Well, thank you, Kevin. Uh, I really appreciate being here and able to share some ideas today. And I must say, we've talked a number of times. It was a pleasure meeting you at National Safety Council Congress last week. Quite an event, and I encourage any of the listeners who have not attended uh, before, that is an event to put on your calendar for next year. A lot of good information there in a lot of different areas. Uh, today we're going to talk about a different way to get lockout functioning well in a workplace. Um, I'm interested, and we'll ask it a little bit, a uh, poll question about your current activity with permit-to-work type systems. Um, but today the idea, uh, the agenda is going to be to discuss the basis of permit-to-work, key ideas that factor in there, um, take a look at permit processes that uh, OSHA uh, refers to directly or um, indirectly, and then we're going to look at uh, permit to lockout. What is the process that we use to put lockout into other permits, such as safe work permits? We'll look at the permit process itself for documenting lockout and how to transition from a lockout permit to documenting new equipment and processes. Then we'll take a quick look at group lockout considerations under permit requirements and then impact that it has on working with contractors. And I will save some time at the end to go through question and answers that I would encourage you to type in as um, we cover that ground. Uh, we're watching them and we're going to set them up uh, so we can address them at the very end. Now, permit to work is formalizing authority to perform a task according to a set plan. It looks at uh, the conditions necessary to fully input and protect employees or workers when hazardous or potentially hazardous situations could exist. And so what it does is it, it says we've got a system that we use for doing work, and we've got accountability that says each of the steps is going to be addressed and recognized as being accomplished before we get ourselves into a situation of exposure. So um, the process involves procedures to request permits, review conditions of the permits, and then pass along permission uh, to perform work. Finally, there's documentation that exists that takes place during the performance of the task, and then um, to deconflict task, and that that means that 
permits take into consideration that what we may be doing to satisfy one side of the um, Oh, task requirement does not create a potential problem or conflict with other work being done in close proximity. An example may be if we're doing a hot work permit um, to protect against uh, uh, source of ignition uh, while we're working with potentially flammable chemicals, we may need to control uh, electrical sources nearby that could be a source of that vapor, and that may require lockout. A little more on that as we get down on the road in discussing different types of permits. So um, I like Safepedia. It's, it's brought up a lot of good user-friendly information in the past, so I use it here to say what do we typically see within a work permit. And the detail that we're looking for really talks about the task assignment. What are we trying to accomplish? Um, what equipment? Um, is going to be utilized, either that we're working on or necessary to complete the job. We've assigned certain people to be involved in this task, and that permit only allows them to participate. Uh, they need to participate under precautions that are laid out in planning the job. And that's one real strength of a permit system is that it is a work plan of how we're going to get from the start of the job to the end of the job with no surprises. It's going to indicate if other people need to be involved or informed of what that work project consists of so that it, it drives communication. And then it's going to say, there's somebody in charge of this. The buck stops with the person originating the permit and verifying conditions are met to perform the work safely and that the permit is closed out. And once a permit, of course, is, is closed, the permission to do that job is also withdrawn. So that job cannot be continued or modified unless a, a permit system controls the additional steps to be done. And then finally, a little bit about an audit process that makes sure that we do what we say we're going to do on that permit. It's very important to make sure that conditions are met and people are in alignment with what we're expecting because if we're going to go through the process of doing this, the risks must be significant and we got to be sure that we're meeting the conditions established by management to get the job done properly. So I want to give you a little background on the permit process and then ask you a question, if I could, that I'd like you to respond to. Um, I'd like to know how many people out there participating in this webinar are currently using permits to control hazards of the workplace. Now, I want to exclude you from considering confined space entry permits because those are a given as far as the OSHA recommendation. I think a lot of places do permit entry. But the question would be, are you using other types of safe work permitting, uh, electrical permitting, line break permitting, um, uh, straight lockout permitting? So if you'd like to click directly on your desktop using your mouse, pick one of the three answers provided. Permits are issued and used frequently in my workplace. Permits are occasionally used for special or hazardous tasks. Or we do not currently use safe work permits or other permits. And again, exclude confined space entry because that's a pretty broad process. So go ahead and click the uh, poll question that best represents your workplace and then hit submit. And in a minute, we will take a look at poll results. As we're waiting for results to come in, I'll share that. I see commonly some industries use permits a lot. I think the idea here is to discuss the possibilities. I think they have applications in a number of industries for, on a number of different reasons. So um, interested to get your feedback. So let's take a look at what uh, we've discovered here. Um, well, very interesting um, distribution here. We've got a lot of, you know, a third of the audience using permits a lot. Um, almost 40% um, using them selectively, and then still a very um, 
good number saying they're really not doing anything at all with permits. Uh, I'll try to use this to gauge uh, my approach to the rest of the presentation. Thank you very much for your feedback. Let's talk about the basic permit process. And this is regardless of what type of permit or type of activity that you are uh, performing. The first step is uh, we've got action that needs to take place that we've got a permit process to cover. This implies we know what the permit process is and we have a methodology established and we're gonna link the task to be done to the permit that applies to the work. We have a responsible supervisor whose job it is to get that task done and they need to determine what control measures need to be taken, what issues will be faced that the permit covers, and have a, a full understanding of what they're going to ask your people to do. Then we assign personnel to perform that specific task. Now we start the preparation mode. The assigned personnel prepare for the task according to conditions set up in the permit. And as they are preparing for the job, they're documenting the control measures required are in place before work begins. The idea then would be the responsible supervisor is going to verify to their satisfaction that the controls are in place, that people are prepared before signing the permit, allowing work to begin. So we have you know, the development stage, filling out a permit. We have the preparation, setting it in place, uh, and getting our preparations completed. And then we have the execution phase, where we perform work under permit conditions. Periodically, verification should take place. Um, drivers of this may be it's a particularly hazardous process. It is a new group of workers that have not worked under the um, permit system before. Maybe we're gauging contractors' performance. And um, maybe we're getting the supervisor familiar with the permit process themselves. They may be verifying for their own sake to see they've thought it out completely and set the job up for success. Finally, the task gets completed safely. That's the end goal of any permit type system. And then we cancel permission so that we can't um, blindly go back into the job. Case in point, confined space entry runs through this whole process. A supervisor decides, I'm signing people to get the job done. You may go into the confined space for this period of time under these conditions. And when the job ends, the confined space permit is canceled and no access is allowed into that confined space despite we have trained and experienced people who have all got the equipment they need to do it. It takes the permission of the company to go in and have that uh, exposure to the confined space to get work done. So what does OSHA say about um, uh, authorization? Uh, through a permit system. Well, they particularly talk about group lockout and tagout, and they say that work uh, permits may play a role in an employer's group lockout, tagout procedures. It coordinates the activities of multiple work groups, especially um, combining employees with outside contractors. It does not specifically say in the lockout takeout standard that you have to use a work authorization permits, but these can be used as a way of achieving compliance um, with group lockout or tagout. Now, where I see this exemplified is, for instance, in the petrochemical industry, where um, it would be impossible to write specific lockout procedures for every permutation and combination of equipment they're trying to isolate and safely work on. And so a permit system drives the idea that we did our research, we know where we're starting a lockout, we know where we finish, we know what conditions have got to be established, and permits are the best way to document that unique task that's being um, performed. If you're going to use a work permit system, there's a couple of things that OSHA is looking for. 
Number one, it should be in your employer's written procedures. So as a company, if you have a written lockout program, it should refer to your permit process, give an idea of what you'd apply a permit to, and very likely give an example of the documentation you're going to use in one of the exhibits attached to your written program. Uh, if in a lockout permit, you are going to follow a written procedure that exists already, it should be an attachment to that permit and a condition. One of the conditions of the permit is you meet all the step-by-step -step requirements of the lockout procedure. The permit should be very specific to what equipment is being worked on and the unique energy sources and characteristics of it that may be involved. For instance, um, arc flash may be a consideration that's not truly part of lockout because lockout is the absence of all energy, but in the testing and verification stage, you may take arc flash precautions. That would be, for instance, a condition of the permit. It will also specify safe methods of work um, and a process of procedures to be used to accomplish that. So I draw this out of the um, OSHA directive to their compliance officers called CPL 0200147. I wish I had a dollar for every time I recommended the safety professionals to get a hold of that. It's a very in-depth look at how OSHA views lockout from the standpoint of letters of interpretation up to the point of its issue in 2008. I find it to be a very illustrative guide, and I recommend if you have not Googled that and downloaded it, that you do so. I think you'll find a lot of answers to a lot of questions in that document. So let's talk about common tasks that are performed under permit conditions. The overlying one is called a safe work permit, and it can be applied to a wide range of tasks and their associated hazards, uh, requiring special consideration and preparation to do the work uh, correctly. Um, I have found that Europe uses a lot of safe work permitting to address energy control issues. Um, there may be standard procedures that can be followed to do a lot of common tasks, but anytime the hazards have yet to be fully defined and we're thinking the process out, a safe work permit is the overlying document that's prepared. Then lockout permits. This is used to identify what particularly is going to be controlled in terms of hazardous energy um, and how we're going to do it and who's going to be responsible for it, and especially in complex groups of workers, you know, multiple work groups interacting, it's virtually a necessity to lay out uh, how we're going to work together. Confined space entry has a outright overt requirement for a permit to be issued each time we're working in spaces with limited ability to get in and uh, get out in the event of emergencies. Confined spaces hold a lot of permits or, or hazards that are covered by the permit analysis, and I'll show you a little example of that. Line breaking is used in uh, industries particularly involved with highly hazardous chemicals. And it says, if I open up this line to do a repair, to do testing, to uh, modify the system, there may be hazards within that line I have to take consideration of. It's not just enough shutting off the, the mechanics upstream. Hazards in terms of pressure and residual chemical may reside in the line, and that's an important um, permit to follow. Live electrical work is almost the antithesis of lockout. We're saying, hey, um, we should be locking out if we didn't have to work live on this. I'll show you some examples under uh, live electrical work permitting where lockout is questioned and considered. And then hot work. This is related to fire prevention. Often it's welding, cutting, grinding that's being addressed by this, but we look at where ignition sources may be nearby and at times lockout gets drawn into a hot work permitting process if we're trying to create a non-ignition, uh, if we're trying to create an ignition-free area to perform um, work 
with combustibles or flammables. So often we start with a safe work permit, overviewing the whole task, and then we may attach particular additional permits to that original permit so that we've got the general conditions and then the specific conditions referred to on the um, detailed permits related to each of those activities. So let's look a little bit at a safe work permit. It really needs to identify who's doing this work, what is it that they're doing, what is the time frame allowed for uh, the work to be done. A good hallmark of a successful permit system is we know about how much time that work is going to take, and we set that permit up for that limited amount of time. So if it's going to be a four-hour job, if we're not done by four hours, either somebody misestimated what the job requires or we're running into problems, either of which could be adding hazard to the work being done, and it demands a reevaluation. So permits can be extended, but it should be based on an assessment that safe conditions are being maintained, and that may be one of the basis for deciding to extend a permit. Okay? And then, of course, why we're doing the work. It will lay out communications responsibilities, channels and methods, and it will highlight responsibility. And it starts with the supervisor originating the permit. If anything goes wrong, you got a question, was the supervisor either properly documenting what needed to be done or paying attention to the controls being applied properly? And lastly, monitoring if permit conditions were being maintained during the task. So whether it is um, omission or oversight, um, that's where we are very involved in supervisors meeting a good awareness of permit activities underway. Now here's a checklist summary of um, a safe work permit. This is just a portion out of a safe work permit. And a couple of things it's asking for, have we gone out there and made sure that we feel verified that everything is right? Um, process equipment considered. Bleeders open and unplugged. Okay, that would be um, relieving stored pressure. Um, um, do we want to um, uh, involve lockout in terms of certain areas that uh, need to be secured? Um, here we're, we've got a checklist of things that need to be considered and then verified. So this may be the oversight, the overview of the challenges that a supervisor checks off with the controls then specified separately. When we look at a safe work permit, there's a couple of ways we do hazard assessment and control specification. The first one is uh, commonly seen as a job hazard analysis or job safety analysis. And this isn't the venue to get into the details of those, but basically a JSA or JHA lists the steps of the work to be done. At each step level, it identifies the hazards recognized to be posed to the workers. And at the last uh, um, column, it's going to match in the control measures that neutralize the hazards found on a step-by-step -step basis. So we know what we're doing each step of the way, and that helps to plan the stages of the job so that we complete the job safely. Next thing, what do I need to do to perform the job safely? Um, here, consider the hierarchy of controls. You know, If at all possible, we'd like to eliminate the hazard, completely take it away. Um, before we use lesser measures like substitution, engineering, controls, administrative, or personal protective equipment. So for instance, um, if I've got to go and work in a pipeline that's full of flammable chemicals normally, what I'd like to do is not only um, uh, drain the line, but purge it with something that would force the flammable liquid completely out and create inert conditions inside so that there is no source of oxygen that would spark ignition of that. That may be elimination through purging. Okay. Um, how can I get injured? Now, 
we, this version I'm showing you is a plain language version, and oftentimes people like this because the workers themselves can contribute their ideas for this. But at other times, this um, question about how I can get hurt is addressed by the JHA or JSA. Um, again, step of the jobs matched with the hazards associated with each step, matched with the controls that are going to be used to manage hazards each step of the way. What am I going to do about it? Um, plain language version would be a written out discussion of what the control measures are expected to be. Um, you could also get into detailed control measures, such as um, providing attachments of um, piping and instrumentation diagrams that have to be um, taken into consideration, one-line electrical diagrams, um, pre-completed lockout procedures that could be applied, um, a ventilation plan that um, would make that confined space um, safe to inhabit. Okay, And the, the thing that permits really draw on is a history. You know, you have a number of permits out there that have been completed for similar work, and you want to draw from what has worked well, what methods have worked, and if you've had problems where you haven't thought of something, a control measure was inadequate, try to draw that history in. Right now, I think uh, without a permit system, a lot of jobs get done, and maybe we account for near misses, maybe we don't. A permit system calls for that accountability that if there's something that wasn't sufficient, what did we do about it? Did we stop work until we got it sufficient? Um, what are the lessons learned uh, from this permit process? Accountability. This again is a safe work permit, but it accounts for the assignment of management overseeing, okay? It jobs for um, uh, who's going to do which jobs, and then there is an accountability uh, sign-in and sign-out. So here we have 10 spots for authorized workers to sign into this permit, or for the supervisor to say, here's a group of seven people I would consider uh, qualified to do this work, and then we see off to the right an accountability that I came into the job, I signed out what I completed. Next day, I, I was tracking my activity. So we know who's doing the job when and that they acknowledge being under the requirements of the permit during the time they're exposed to the hazards of the task. Confined space. You know, I've seen a lot of confined space permits that don't really talk about lockout. It just said you must lockout. My thought would be I, I like the permits that I see that um, either specify the lockout permit that must be followed. For instance, here we have um, a tank. It's a 30-foot by 60-foot tank, and we want to make sure that it is locked out according to a specific lockout procedure designed for the tank. You also see a methodology where part of the hazard assessment generated a summary of what is on that lockout procedure, and as a minimum, we're calling out what has to be controlled so that it's a safe working condition to go inside the tank. Now, often I see one or the other. I see either the lockout procedure as reference and it's stapled to the confined space permit or the safe work permit, or I see this summary of what are the sources that have to be controlled and then verification that they were fully controlled and tested to be in a safe work condition. So take a look at your confined space permits if you're using that system. Is there something solid related to lockout? Uh, if not, I would encourage you there's room to improve your permit format. Live electrical work. We kind of talked about this in being, again, you know, contrary to lockout, where lockout is a fully de-energized de and secured situation. Here with live work, we're trying to say, why is not lockout being applied? What is the justification we have to work live? And so here the question is clearly on this energized electrical work permit. Um, why can't we de-energize it or defer to work to the next time we can? And that's a pretty pointed explanation. 
One of the things I find about NFPA 70E is there's a lot of precaution, a lot of preparation. People are ready to go do this work. Um, my hope is that the electrical safe work permit gets the, the due diligence it says that I can justify why my people are doing this. Um, if I can't and the accident happens, that, uh, you know, if the accident happens, clearly the work was not justified uh, because the dangers were not properly controlled, the hazards were not fully recognized, the proper procedures were not fully followed, the PPE was not sufficient for the blast that was experienced, any number of things, okay? Now, under safe work practices, under live electrical work, the question would be, is any lockout possible? If we're working in one particular source of electricity that must be live for um, a justified reason, is there anything else around it that could affect the workers that we could lock out? Can we create a safer work condition as possible so all we're worried about is the particular circuit or the equipment that has to be serviced live, okay? And again, we're looking for rationale lock, not to lock out. That's an important thing. I would say if you are doing live electrical permitting work, take an audit. Take a look and see if, first of all, is lockout addressed? If justifications are solid? You know, if, if, if you were going to go through an audit by a loss prevention professional or um, an OSHA compliance officer, is what's on your historical permits going to support why you did the work the way you did? Here's a line-breaking permit. Um, this establishes safe standard work practices and procedures. So backing a permit is a methodology and a standard procedure that should be followed um, at all possible. And when it can't be, what are you going to do about the special circumstances um, you are facing? So um, routine production operations are commonly performed on, by trained personnel under standard operating procedures. So. If we know what we're doing, we've done it before, we have an SOP for it, no problem. It's the unique work. Um, the, 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 the things you go, you know, you better be careful with this one. That may be a signal why breaking into a system of hazardous chemicals um, would be uh, really augmented by the hazard assessment, the control requirements, and the oversight by the permit issuer uh, the supervisor that's overseeing the operation. So line break permits have a big place in any um, process system. Did an awful lot in ammonia refrigeration and here, you know, whether it be a food plant or um, a, a um, power generation facility, um, breaking into ammonia system has got um, gaseous exposures, liquid exposures, and ultimately, too much of a uh, atmosphere of ammonia builds up, it can be ignitable. So um, um, line break permits have excellent applications, not only in refrigeration, but flammables, toxics, um, and reactives. Where's the lockout in a line break permit? Okay, so first of all, we're trying to determine where the line break is taking place, what's inside that line, um, what are the special requirements that are being followed, um, what's necessary, and, and in these special requirements, this is the supervisor filling out uh, what they feel needs to be done with the initials being signed off by the workers that it indeed did take place. Okay, so um, this is a short list. It makes for a good illustration. Many times the list is longer on more detailed line break permits. Okay. Lockout permits. Um, so why would you use a specific lockout permit uh, to document lockout activity? Well, number one, you may have complex equipment never locked out in this combination before. Um, we did some work uh, at a company that used extensive robotic cells. 
and they decided I've got to go in and work on one section of the robotic cell, but all they had was a procedure for every single robot in the cell. It was about 120 steps long. So a procedure or a permit was written, excuse me, to address work that was going to be authorized in one section of the cell remote from the other robots. And the, the line right above the illustration says, completed lockout permits can finish, convert well to finished lockout procedures. So in that case, the, the permit to work in a section of the cell translated to a lockout procedure drawing off the experience of preparing the permit. So first time locking out equipment, you may not have an existing procedure. Um, you've never touched it before, never thought of it, now there's something that demands your attention. If you don't have time to document a lockout procedure, I would recommend considering a lockout permit to say, let's think through the process, let's make sure we've covered all our bases. This is also the case for brand new equipment coming in uh, and being installed in the workplace. Again, no existing procedure means we're going to go through this carefully. We've never done this before. We're going to think through the process. But the great thing is to take your notes off these permits, and they, they transition very well, especially with successful completion and documentation that the testing to verify zero energy worked translates very well into prepared uh, lockout procedures. Another thing would be um, process equipment not involving hazardous equipment where everything is interlinked. We use this sometimes in uh, manufacturing lines where um, we're working in a section of the equipment. We may write a permit just for work taking place in an area to create a safe work envelope without having to shut down other parts of the line that has no bearing or influence on the work being done in a certain area. Okay. Another aspect that I like to emphasize is contractors. It drives accountability to say, all right, you know, I'm going to provide you with a procedure, but I'm also going to give you permission for a period of time to do things under these conditions. I need you to follow these. So it's a way to get contractors involved instead of simply handing off a procedure or giving them nothing and hoping they're going to do the job properly not get hurt, not hurt anybody else, not contribute to a, a um, failure that shuts the plant or a section of the plant down till repairs are made. Let's look through lockout permits and review some of the details. Okay, So here you see an example of a, a straightforward lockout permit. And um, I am going to make a copy of this permit in blank form available as part of the materials associated with this presentation. You'll be able to download the slides. We'll make a copy of this permit available to you as well. Okay. So when I fill this in, I'm identifying myself as the permit issuer, the responsibility I have to get the work done, what we're working on, um, cleaning the oil from the system, and now I've assigned uh, a series of employees to participate in the work and get it done. I've noted when I'm doing the work and the time I'm started, which happens to be two minutes from now. Wow, I didn't, that's coincidence. I didn't know I was going to plan it out that close. Now my hazard assessment. Okay, I'm going to go through here and I'm going to go, now what really should be involved here? And what I'm doing is listing numerically the number of sources that I feel we have to control in order to do this work. Okay, um, the reason we're doing this is we've never documented a lockout procedure before or it's, been a, it's a unique application. Um, we've identified the following energy sources. Um, we've counted them, and we need you to account for each identified source in the lockout process that follows. Here's the next uh, part of the uh, process. It is saying each step above needs to be followed or indicate that it's not applicable for whatever reason. And then we need you to account for each one of those energy sources identified in the, the energy procedure you applied below. So let's see what that looks like. 
Okay. So everything's applicable. They, the team followed those instructions in order. Here's what they noted uh, that has to be done in order to account for. And additional steps required. No, um, we are fine and uh, ready to go. Now the sign-off. Um, when I'm ready to begin the job, the, per the permit issuer has off already issued the permit and said, you can do the job. So when I look through this, I need the participating people, including me as a supervisor, to sign off that we agree precautions have been taken and will be followed. And I note my time that the uh, procedure started, so I've got some time tracking going on. Next thing, um, the job is completed safely and we want to trigger release of the permit. So here we are check marking and verifying we did everything and according to the machine's requirements, according to our program, to properly release um, the machine from lockout. And then when we were done, we signed below that we agree that um, uh, we have followed lockout procedure, met all permit requirements, and we note the time we did so. And at the end, I will step back in there, and I will say our permission has ended. Um, this job is done. You do not have permission to work on this machine outside the parameter of this permit. Okay. Now, I think you see there's a lot of information that was gathered here that would roll in well to a lockout procedure being written up, and now maybe that will apply to this particular air compressor going forward. Okay. Now, we have people talk to us about, hey, sometimes there are grouped lockout procedures. Well, we have a lot of the same piece of equipment that we use over and over again. Um, I got so much to account for. I let's. This is an air handling unit, a rooftop unit. Let's say that I have 27 of these across my plant. You know, do I really need to look for a needle in a haystack? One, uh, you know, I need to service machine number 11 out of 27. But if the procedures are all identical, what you can do is a checklist method that sets up the conditions, then has. Um, participants sign off that they did apply each of the steps, that they followed all their procedures. If they found anything unusual, they could account for it. Okay, And then, again, the sign-on is we did everything according to the checklist and tracking of time, and we released properly as well. So this is a scale-back checklist that can be used for commodity-style equipment where very much identical, but we want accountability. We just don't want people, you know, going out there and saying, I did, I couldn't find the procedure, so I didn't use one at all. This is a nice summation, and we're seeing um, companies and contractors going this direction. Um, lockout permits. Let's talk a little bit about um, group lockout as we wrap up here. Um, if permits are issued to large mixed group of workers, Coordination is very important. Uh, everybody needs to know the working methods in place, and a permit process aligns that. It says there's one system we're working under, and everybody's going to be participating the same way, whether that is the host company's program, whether that is the contractor, the general contractor's program, what have you. So the supervisor issuing the lockout permit notes the specific procedure on the permit and then applies the locks in order at each isolation point. As commonly, they use a key-like key set. So now if I have a complex machine that's being rebuilt, if I have 47 lockout points, I have a leader knowledgeable in following a procedure that is hitting each one of those isolation points and securing them. Okay. Then the lockout leader secures the keys to those machine locks inside a lockbox and secures it with their personal lock, which they retain key possession to. Then they test the machinery to zero movement and energy. So we now know from the leader standpoint, we've achieved a totally controlled condition. Now, it's sometimes done that a second verification leader representing the contractor, for instance, 
or a different work group or just a second set of eyes goes through and applies the same lockout procedure to the same equipment using another set of locks. And what we have now is two sets of eyes that say we're in agreement this machine was locked out correctly and we both bind a test to zero. Any per worker participating in a group lockout has the right to verify that, but often when you have solid representation and verification, you've got a confidence in your workers going to work that this is going to um, be a safe situation to um, uh, work under. So group lockout techniques um, often involve permits and then allow the workers to focus on accountability at the permit working on the protection of the group system, group lockout system. Let's talk a little bit about permit lockout with contractors as we wrap up um, today. Contractors are um, a highly dependent part of getting work done in most workplaces. They've got specialized knowledge. They've got the extra time and manpower um, to get out there and get work done that our maintenance team can't do themselves. Sometimes they're representing the manufacturers of certain equipment for warranty work or modifications. There is a absolute need for contractors to be in the workplace. Question is, how do they participate in lockout? Now, ideally, what we would do is match our systems up and say, contractor, you're working under ours or you're working independently. You could work under your own program, which I've reviewed, and we're good to go. Okay? Contractors need to come in prepared to do all required lockout um, conditions. So whenever possible, the host company should provide the contractor with lockout procedures for the equipment they will be working on. Often that's the case. The procedures are available, and there's no better indication of what's expected than that well-written procedure the contractors are responsible to comply with. Okay? But when work under a permit process um, to document required control methods, um, we want to make sure the participation of the contracted personnel is assured. So um, what we're going to do here is we're going to either specify the lockout procedure to be followed, or we're going to document the lockout isolation that needs to take place on the permit, and we're going to see to it that the contractor then complies and isolates each step of the way, or at a minimum, participates in the group lockout set up to protect them. Okay? Often the host companies lead the lockout procedure, um, safety department may lead, the maintenance manager may lead, and they will place those locks on equipment. Um, having the contractor participate at the lockbox by adding in, meaning that the host company cannot remove the lockout till the contractor indicates the job is done and we're satisfied and our people are in a safe location. So as part of the um, permit process, we do want to see procedures prepared for all previously undocumented equipment. So if you're using a permit for equipment never worked on before, that's a key time to convert your permit process into documented lockout procedures owned and controlled by the host company. In closing, the host employer really needs to be aware of contractor activities. By signing a permit to work process, you're saying the supervisor on that permit is ultimately responsible if something goes wrong. Um, the contractors agree to work under the permit, but I think it's not only assurance to the supervisor overseeing the job, but just to the well-being of the people that we're going to take a verification stance and look to see the requirements of the permits are being made um, and that the precautions are adequate to keep accidents from occurring. That is truly the idea of permit to work. We understood the task. We assigned the responsibility of somebody to oversee what's going on. That person established the conditions, possibly in concert with the people doing the work, so that we have the best understanding possible of what the permit conditions should be. And then the supervisor verifies their satisfaction that the permit conditions have been met before work begins. And then 
periodically checks that permit conditions are maintained during the activity. And when it's done, the permit issuer, that supervisor, wants to sign off. Because why do they want to leave themselves open to ongoing work that they're not overseeing and assuring it's being done correctly? So with that, um, we've gone through some um, good um, discussion here today. I know there's been some questions coming in, and I'd like to take some time to address those. Excellent. Great job, Todd. Thanks for your insights and expertise. Before we do start that Q&A, just want to remind everyone of the evaluation survey that we're asking you to complete. The survey should be appearing on your screen now. We do appreciate your input as it helps us improve future webcasts. If you don't happen to see the survey on your screen, please turn off your pop-up blocker. You may also access it by clicking the survey button near the lower right part of your screen. And with that, we will get to some questions. First, how do you recommend a mechanic make adjustments to a machine with the power on? Um, well, you know, that's an interesting question because I would have to default to the idea that they should not be making adjustments to the machine with power on. You know, that's what um, lockout's designed for. Um, and you said maintenance workers. So OSHA does have a, a acknowledgement that minor servicing tasks, routine and repetitive and integral to production, um, can be done as long as alternative methods are used that creates a safe working condition. So a couple of things here. One, a maintenance worker is probably... You know, you'd have to define it, but how are they doing a production-related task? That should be part of the task description. Um, number two, um, you'd have to justify why the work needs to be done live or can safely be done live. And so part of the work I've done in ANSI Z244, uh, especially the 2016 edition that I was part of the authoring group on, focused on alternative methods to lockout, uh, when lockout cannot be used, or when um, safer conditions could be provided for the worker using engineering controls proved to be completely reliable. So a permit probably would not be issued in a case like this because as Kevin, you said, it, this seems to be a, an adjustment, you know, something that has to be done pretty quickly versus a lockout permit does get to zero energy. Um, a lockout permit, does, you know, is a big enough thing that we are going to shut the machine down fully. And so I would encourage the person who asked the question, other people who are interested, take a look at Z244, the 2016 version, look at alternative procedures to lockout, and um, it's, it's a big topic. I'd be happy to answer other questions on it, but time will not allow to get into the details of that today. Is each permit form individually available, or are they all on one form? You know, I have I have seen combo permits that started with a safe work on top and then allowed for the subset procedures or permits to be underneath, but that's rare. Typically what I see is a safe work permit, maybe the master document, and then additional permits such as the confined space work being done has an entry permit, the um, line break permit, is attached as well. So where the safe work permit identifies those subsets, it will see, say, a C attached confined space permit number Z16201, you know, or something like that. So there'll be reference to it, and it'll be part of the permit package. Um, I have seen them all in one, but it's rare. Um, so I'd have to say that standard practice is layering of individual permits. Can you please state again where in the code these permits are required? Ah, they are not 
particularly stated in the code. What they're alluded to in terms of lockout is in the OSHA guide to its compliance officers that they issued in 2008. The name of the document is CPL 02-00147. And if you Google that, it'll take you to this form that um, will allow you to download OSHA's guidance. And I didn't have the section number, I can't recall exactly, but it's under group lockout, and the permit process is, is talked about and acknowledged. Permit lockout does not appear in the OSHA standard uh, issued in 1989. Um, I, I honestly don't think it was thought of or recognized um, by OSHA at the time they issued that. But then um, webinar participants should understand, just real briefly, the research for the OSHA law started in the 70s based on case after case reviewed of what caused accidents, it was first documented in the ANSI Z244 lockout standard that came out in 1982. Seven years later, OSHA issued their law based almost 90% verbatim on the ANSI lockout standard. And ANSI did not consider permit to work in that initial research and standard. And that's why it had no place in the lockout law as it stands today. As of 2008, people using permit processes have been acknowledged to have a good system. That's why OSHA included it in their guidance to compliance officers they issued in the mid 80s, or in the mid 2000s, excuse me, 2008. Regarding lockout permit, is it required to have two authorized people writing the permit? No, it is not. Um, it is required to have a supervisor that takes responsibility and hands off to one authorized person. The supervisor could participate in the permit themselves, um, but typically you don't want a person originating a permit and doing all the work just themselves. Otherwise, it becomes a paper chase. You want a supervisor to be responsible for the work to be done and have an assigned worker that they're considering the safety of. And again, a supervisor can participate, but a worker should not originate and close a permit for work they did solely by themselves. Next question says, often the contractor company may have alternative energy process that does not need lockout tagout. How do we allow for that? Um, by examining what they, they have, um, they may have um, a very solid um, methodology, and you can run that through your permit process of considering what are the steps that they want to follow. That's right out of their alternative procedure. What are the controls recommended, I'm sorry, what are the hazards that you identify with each of the steps in their procedure? Did they properly identify all of them, or do you see a few more that should be considered? And then does their control methodology speak to controlling the hazards associated at each step? Um, so you can definitely run an alternative procedure through a lockout permit process. Um, um, I guess I would again say know what the, the ANSI methodology is. It was the first time it was really well put out there as to what a good responsible justification process is, a risk assessment process, and procedural documentation. So maybe you want to ask your contractor, how did you come up with that? Do, did you follow any particular methodology? If not, let's run it through a JHA and see if we're satisfied that you've got control measures for each hazard we perceive to be part of the job. Okay, and we've got time for one more question. How okay. long do you have to how long do you have to keep the com, uh, completed permits on file after the job is complete? We would recommend a full year on file, though there is no definitive time frame. There just is benefit from having permits to refer to. First benefit would be 
I want to refer back when I've got the time. I want to write a lockout procedure for what we had to do under permit conditions. So you want that there so you can convert and have a finished permit or not permit procedure that next time the job is done, you've got a procedure ready to go for. Secondly, lessons learned. How often are we doing this permit process? Are we doing it the same way? Uh, are we having any problems um, with different workers doing it? Are they, are they approaching in different ways? So I would say my recommendation would be a year um, based on a good review process, but there's nothing in law that says you would have to hold it for um, a specified period of time. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you. Uh, unfortunately, we have run out of time. I'm sorry we didn't get to everyone's questions today, but all of them, uh, all the unanswered questions will be forwarded along to Todd. Once again, hope that you take the time to fill out the evaluation survey on your screen and give us your feedback. And that ends today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. We'd like to thank Todd Grover, everyone at MasterLock, and all of you who listened in. Thanks, and have a great day.